This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Hawke's Bay, your community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. The Gay Agenda is proudly supported by funding from the Rural Foundation. The Rural Foundation seeks to advance the health, well-being and visibility of LGBTQI New Zealanders. For more information about the Rural Foundation, check out their website at www.ruralfoundation.nz. Radio Hawks Bay are uh, listening to the Gay Agenda with BB, and today we're interviewing Jenna Yao. Hi, Jenna. Hi. Thanks for having me. No worries. Um, so, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So, I'm a writer slash narrative designer from the Washington D.C. area. Um, for those who I guess aren't super accustomed to the game design field and all of the roles that entails it, um, narrative design means that I essentially am one of the designers who decides how a story is delivered through the game. So I exist somewhere within the sphere of writing and somewhere within the sphere of systems design for video games. That's so cool. Like, it's such a cool thing to do, I reckon. Yeah, no, it, it's it's a very specific thing that always causes, like, a lot of confusion at family reunions and my relatives are like, so how's work? Um, but it's really fun. Yeah, there's, like, a lot of things like that. Like, I still don't know what really my dad does for a living. <laughs> and, like, I was, it's just, like, yeah, he does building stuff, I think. I'm not too sure. <laughs> um, so, oh, how do you identify as well? We should probably talk about that. Sure. Oh, yeah, that's that's a very good point. Um, I'm non-binary. My pronouns are they, them. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of sexuality, I usually say queer bisexual. Yeah, that um, makes sense. But it, gender isn't really a thing for me in any way. Yeah, that's all. So I've always known you to be that, like, you, you never had to come out. Oh, I should say, like, how we know each other, considering you're calling from Washington, D.C. Um, yeah. Um. <laughs> like, so Jenna is, like, really good friends with my girlfriend, Kira, who is also American. So we met through Yeah, we Kira. went to college together. Yeah. Because you guys were both, both studying game design and stuff like that and worked on a lot of projects together. Yes, we went. We met our freshman year. Um, we were both the only freshmen in our game design class. Um, oh, wow. And we just, like, walked home from class together one day, and that was it from there. Um, <laughs> we've just been really tight ever since. Yeah. Um, and now both of us work in games. We do different things, though. Yeah, yeah. And we, I remember you, like, hijacking Kira's Twitter account at one point so we could talk over books that we both liked or something like that. Probably. There would be times, I think, when you and Kira started dating where, like, we'd be hanging out together, like me and Kira, and then you would say hi or something, and Mm. Kira would mention, like, XYZ book you had read or just something, and I would be like, wait, give me your phone. I want to talk to Phoebe about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've read Six of Crows too. We, we need to talk. Yeah, she and still hasn't read Six of Crows. Yeah, and Kira's uh, book giving, uh, gift giving game has gotten significantly better since you two started dating because you recommend all the books that I want to read. <laughs> um, so Kira's always able Ninth, to get you? me something good. Yeah. What were you saying? Have you read Gideon the Nine? Uh, yes. Oh my god! Love it. Oh. And I'm 
so excited for Nona. I'm getting an advanced reading copy of Nona the Night. I hate you so much now, actually. <laughs> I'm going to hang up because I don't like you anymore. <laughs> no, I want advanced reading copy of Nona the Night. got to work at like a bookshop or something for that. Yeah, true, true. Um, okay, so let's talk about video games, which is admittedly a subject I know very little about, considering I date a game designer. But, like, <laughs> how did you get into video games and things like that? Sure. Um, so I've just been, like, into video games a lot since I was a teen. Um, mm-hmm. My first games weren't super story-heavy. Like, I started off with Pokemon uh, and then just kept playing Pokemon at age 10 till adulthood until now. Sorry if you hear chopping noises and cooking dinner. <laughs> I'm currently cutting up a pear. Um, but I started off with Pokemon, and then as I got older, I was interested in a little bit more um, story-driven games, just because I was like, Pokemon's fun, but it also is like the same five mechanics over and over again. So I kind mm-hmm. of wanted to see what else was out there. And then like when I was 14 or so, and like ending middle school, starting high school, I... Played a game. I played two games that I think really changed the changed the game. That's a dumb cheesy thing to say, but who, that really changed um, my perception of games and got me way more interested. Um, I, the two games were Dragon Age Inquisition and Transistor by Supergiant Games. Um, Dragon Age Inquisition is by Bioware, which is now a subset of uh, EA. Um, and both those games are RPGs which made it very easy for me to adjust from Pokemon because it was, like, battles with stats and different moves. Um, and both of them existing sort of within, like, the turn-based play. Uh, but more importantly, both of them were, like, super-duper narrative-heavy. Um, Transistor is a much smaller game that could be fin- you can start and finish within a day. It's, like, only a few hours of play. And then Dragon Age Inquisition is significantly larger game that's like almost open world but not quite um, and it takes hours and hours and hours to play and there's like a ton of branching paths and a ton of characters and like different consequences for your actions and stuff um, and both of them were just like really really transformative for me because I was like oh I've always loved like stories and stuff and like getting really attached to characters or like thinking about world building um, but I just never really considered games to be I, it never crossed my mind that games would be a good vehicle for that because I was, like, 14. Um, and then from then on, I just started playing more and more and more games. Um, I got really into visual novels at some point. And uh, because I spent a lot of time drawing at that time, I was like, oh, I want to make art for games because these games are gorgeous, and I would love it if my art looked like that, so that should be a career path I look into. I used to want to be an animator, and then I was like, that's too much work. Uh, I was like, I'll be a concept artist for games, which is a lot of work still, just a different kind. Um, yeah, then I went through high school, and then I came into Maryland Institute College of Art, where I met Kira. Um, mm-hmm. But we both actually came in as illustration majors, and then we both switched our majors to game design after taking game design classes. Uh, oh. Kira switched a lot faster than I did. Versus I held out a little bit further into our senior, or sophomore year and was like, mm, no, I still like drawing. I, I want to keep drawing, but even if illustration classes, like, suck the life out of me. I like how you decided um, you were like, oh, animation, and it's too much work. You decided to make video games instead, which is, like, <laughs> insane. No, it's, um, I think, like, for me, it's, 
it's not just like the the amount of work I do because uh, I still work a lot. Mm. It's more just like um, writing is so much more interdisciplinary within the game space because mm. like when it comes to novels, you write a book and then you're done. Uh, but with games, it's not just like you write and then you never touch the game again. It's like you're writing things to make sense of game mechanics. You're writing things to match levels that have been designed. You're given character designs and animations that have already been made and told to justify them or write a story about them. Like, it's a lot more collaboration across fields, which also means that a lot more people kind of have knowledge of multiple fields instead of just one. Mm -hmm. So, like, since I came in with an illustration background, that's actually been something that's really helped me in games that I've been able to, like communicate with storyboarders and animators and concept artists more effectively because I've been in their shoes. Um, And it's just really... Because those are just different versions of storytelling, so it's fun to be able to, like, bridge that gap between departments to make a cool game with a cool story. It's really, like, such a fascinating way to tell stories. (laughs) Pardon? It's really, like, such a fascinating way to tell stories, I reckon, video games. Like, even though I don't play very many because I'm, like... I don't, I don't get into them because I know that if I get into them, I will not get anything else done because I will just play video games all the time. But like, I just, I, you, I, you like, say that, but when you stories, work in games, you them, don't like, want so to play cool. them anymore. I, I really like admire people who can make like stories in that way. I think you should try it out sometime. Honestly, um, what started me like trying to write in games is this tool called Twine, which yes. is like the most basic, uh, how do I say this? It's a storytelling tool. It allow, it's like very code light. You can get more into programming if you really, really want to, but you don't have to. Mm. Um, and it's like a simple branching tool that lets you create stories that have a lot of different roots and like kind of map them out as like a giant flowchart that has text in it that can be exported as a playable game file. Um, and something that I think I'm going to try and tie this back in, I guess, to the more the broader topic of the podcast is something interesting to note of uh, about Twine is that because it's free and open source, it's actually kind of started like an, a queer game revolution because mm-hmm. the barrier to entry was so low. Um, so like a lot of marginalized people who otherwise are kind of kept out of the industry for monetary or educational or just like whatever reason they can just make games in their browser using Twine. And if they have a compelling story and neat graphics, or maybe even just one or the other, they're able to make these completed games and put them out out in the world for free. And that's created, like, a lot of actually really influential kind of works of art and story in games that are made by and for queer people. Yeah. I think I have actually played one on Twine before. And I know, like, didn't you use Twine for, like, your final project or something along those lines, maybe? My final project was prototyped in Twine, but ultimately ah. ended up being a lot bigger. Um, yeah. But I have yeah, made some finished games in it. Mm. Um, what did you play? What, what have you played the Twine game? Um, I can't remember what it was called, but it was, like, this queer, like, um, camp. Uh, it was sort of like a camp, and it was like... This, oh, was it Birdland? Yes, yeah, because everyone was like slowly turning into monsters and stuff. 
Yeah, that's that was actually one of the games that Kira and I had to play for homework in our narrative design class. Um, that's it's why a I fun game that, about yeah. summer camp, and people are slowly turning into birds, and it's kind of heralded as like a really influential game within the uh, queer game space. Um, there's a few. I, I don't remember who created Birdland because I never. I played a different one out of our options. Um, I played some a game called With Those We Love Alive, which I think was made by Porpentine. Um, and that one was also, like, super explicitly queer because the main character was a trans woman, and there was, like, it, they were essentially a, uh, how do I say this? They were, like, captives in a royal court, it felt like. Oh. And one of the, one of the resources you managed was, like, your estrogen. Um, it wasn't, uh, like, implant, like, like, a like patches, it was more like sigils or like spell things. Um, and one of the really cool parts of that game was that it would ask you to draw your spell sigils on your arm if you played to kind of represent different moments in the story. Um, but yeah, no, there's there's like a ton of really interesting games that have been made out there um, by trans people and queer people. And a lot of them are entwined because that's just like the most accessible resource to do it in. Mm. That's really cool. Um, do you want to yeah. talk a bit about your own creations some more? Sure. Um, so I think one of my favorite projects I've ever made was also a time game, and it's called Cut Them Off. Um, it's very short, but it's about two teenagers that have wings on their back, and in the middle of the night, one of them comes over to the other's house. Um, you're the player character. You, the player character, are the, are the one hosting this place. Like if the, char- the other character comes over to your house, and requests that you cut her wings off. And it's essentially, like, not a literal representation of top surgery, though it's, like, very similar, um, because it's, like, talking about, like, she can't... The the character that asks you to cut them off, like, can't bear to look at herself with them anymore and, like, hates having them and, like, thinks they look okay on other people, but... um, doesn't can't take them for herself anymore and there's like discussions of like what to do with the wings what once they're off like do we burn them do we throw them out do we give them back to her family and she like doesn't want you to give them back to her family because they'll just make like a weird shrine to her dead self quote-unquote um Mm. there's no real true way to interpret this story but it, it essentially is just about like queer coming of age and like the mess that comes with exploring yourself and how we unintentionally hurt each other as we figure out what we want from ourselves. Um, and it's like kind of a gory game because you do cut the wings off and it, but most of the game is centered around that action of like slicing wings. But, um, it was really fun to make and I got to illustrate it too. So it's a combination of like my writing, my art and like a little bit of my programming skills. And it's, been kind of like I, I hesitate to say a cult classic because there's so many different like scopes and tiers of infamy in indie games, mm. but it's definitely like one of my most well received projects. That's cool. Like, is it one of the ones that really blew up? Because I remember you got like a bit of a more of a following on Twitter, and now I see you just like attacking <laughs> the like very heteronormative <laughs> patriarchal gaming industry and being like, "Yeah, gonna go." <laughs> Go, Gina. I can't pitch in because I don't know what the hell's going um, on, but I'm excited. Yeah, that was, I think, my first game to really get a lot of attention. Um, it didn't, like, blow up, so to speak, so much as it garnered, like, a lot of really specific attention in a very specific 
like subset of internet users. There's a website I use called itch.io that mm. hosts a lot of indie games. It's a free marketplace. Um, and it's, it's got a really broad range in quality because there's no barrier to uploading or entry. So there's like everything from prototypes to like borderline AAA games with like insane funding. Um, but the first one of my games to really like go viral was actually my senior thesis game, which um, was made a few months after I made Cut Them Off. Um, and it's another game about taking bodies apart, which is kind of a theme for me. <laughs> my senior yeah. year. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> but it was a game about taking apart a giant robot that was made out of the body of a god because I got really into mecha anime during the pandemic. So I had a lot of thoughts about like the idealized self and like transness in relation to the military. And there's that one um, short story that caused a lot of controversy and was named after like a really offensive internet meme. Um, I sexually identify as an attack helicopter. And it's basically about a, someone who serves in the military whose gender is attack helicopter. And it's like a really provoking and intriguing exploration into like what it means to identify as different genders and like, how to exist within the war machine because like there's a lot of discussion, especially when Trump was president in the United States about like, should trans people be allowed to be in the military? And some progressive progressives are like, yes, trans people should be allowed in the military. They should be allowed to serve. We should be thanking them, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of like leftists and more radical people were like, who cares? Because like, yeah, we want trans acceptance, but is, it's not progressive if they're taking part in imperialism and the U the American war machine. Um, mm. So just thinking about like the specific scenarios in which trans bodies are acceptable. Um, and those tend to only be scenarios in which the government is served because they'll let you do whatever with your body when it's disposable. Yeah. Um, and the military is like a very parasitic presence in our country. So there's a lot about that. Um, there's a lot of my own religious angst, which is why it was like the body of a god that you're taking apart. Um, so it was like a lot of my own uh, personal upbringing and philosophy on religion as a Lebanese American. And then like, just like late capitalism angst and like working <laughs> shit jobs that won't take care of you that just need bodies to fill mm. space and do tasks until money runs out, stuff like that. Um, and that game... Um, because I posted that on Twitter at the right time with a decent amount of followers and people just really like mechs and game design, um, it went pretty viral and I, and I was given, not given, but people bought my game, which is crazy because it's my first game that I actually put for sale. People bought it and I got about like, I'm going to say one to $3,000 in the first day. Nice, that's awesome. Yeah, within 24 hours of uploading it, which was unbelievable. That's so cool, dude. It seemed really cool. I should play it. I'm going to play it. I will play it. Yeah. I mean, the same just... warning with, um, with Cut Them Off, it is kind of gory. Um, there's a vivid description of the body being taken apart. And um, spoiler, because it's a god and not necessarily a person, uh, sometimes the body talks back. Oh, so you are actively, like, taking apart a body that doesn't want to be taken apart, but then that body also did not want to become the weapon that it is. So, you know, just... 
Are there a lot any of ankle injuries? That's kind of my only squig Pardon? thing. Are there any like ankle injuries? That's my only like squig thing. Um, no ankle injuries specific. Um, but uh, there's description of like muscles being like unwrapped and things like that, and just like blood gushing. But oh, it's not limited to specific body parts. <laughs> okay, that's all good. <laughs> um, yeah. It might not be your thing. Um, I can take another look through it and, like, warn warn you of specific parts that might happen. Okay. Um, but there is, like, a general pretty hefty list of trigger warnings before anybody plays it. Gotcha. Um, so, did you want to talk about the discourse in gaming that we we kind of discussed? We very briefly discussed it, I think. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, so that's... That is started in the game industry. Language? It's not really limited to it. Um, but essentially, a narrative designer I really look up to um, posted the other day, like, what's the point? Like, kind of a rhetorical question, but essentially what she was asking was, why would anybody make overly cynical, hopeless stories right now? Like, mm. what's, how is that in any way productive? Um, and, I don't know. Um, it's a pretty innocuous question. The danger is that it just kind of escalated and went everywhere and left her tweet radius, like her followers. So she had a lot of angry randos accusing her of things she did not say in her tweet thread. Um, oh, gotcha. But essentially the discussion that was spawned because of it is people discussing, like, catharsis from media and how it's productive and helpful and how, yes, creating hopeless stories can help you come to terms with hopeless realities because things are very scary right now for everybody. Um, but then, like, it's it, it's just, like, it's kind of the age-old creative question, I guess, so to speak, is, like, uh, what is the point of you making your story? Um, and she is of the belief that, like, we really, we really don't need to make misery porn right now. Like, we don't need to make ourselves feel worse. It's not productive. Um, mm. And she herself is... A queer woman. She's Indian. Um, she's not like she. I think at some point lived in Britain, but I think is currently based in India. Don't quote me on that. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't say quote. Don't quote me on that. I'm a live recording. Uh, <laughs> but basically, a lot of people got in her mentions and like accused her of being an American, like not knowing what she's talking about, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's just like. I don't know. I agree with her to an extent. I don't think misery porn is the productive thing to make, but I'm also somebody that's, like, kind of edgy <laughs> with the work I make. I don't try to be, but what I write ends up being kind of, like, the culmination of what I'm worried about, what my fears are, how I was raised, um, how I've been ostracized as a queer person, as an Arab-American, stuff like that. Um, so I make stuff that's, like, kind of emblematic of those things. But I don't make them because I think they have to be dark and serious. That's just, like, something that helps me cope with those things. But yeah. in terms of the stuff I've worked on commercially, I'm actively, like, trying to avoid misery porn. Like, the main character of a game I'm working on right now is non-binary, and I've, like, sat down with the scripts that were written before I joined and, and looked at moments where the main character was misgendered, and I was like, okay, I think we can tone this moment down because this seems like it's really pandering to what cisgender people think it's like to be misgendered. 
and doesn't feel like the actual reaction a non-binary person would have. Um, mm. And another game I'm working on, it's like completely slice of life, and it's all queer and trans people just basking in their own joy and their own bodies. Like it's not, there's no real like severe stakes, and there is like drama and like some like deep heartfelt moments, but none of that stems from misery of being who they are. Like it's not a miserable game in any way, shape, or form. Um, and it's just like, I don't know. I, I personally don't have a side on in either discourse because I think there's merit to both darker stories and uplifting ones. And I think there's a good space to operate in between where you make both or neither or whatever. Um, but something that the original poster said that I've been thinking about as well is like, or not even the original poster, but somebody somebody that, that we're both acquainted with said was that like there is kind of um, the danger of making overly hopeful or overly cathartic media in any way, whether it's dark or uplifting, is like is if you if you if you're too extreme with it, then people can mistake emotions synthesized by fiction and engaging in fiction with actual like productivity. And replacing praxis and, like, actual real-world action that will tangibly help someone or fix things, replacing all of that action with uh, consuming media and patting themselves on the back for it, for feeling mm. sad. Um, and that's especially a danger for, like, white people, gender people, straight people, because it's, like, those stories by marginalized people, or even by other cis people, um, can feel kind of, like... Uh, they can they can be very provocative, but they can also kind of serve as empathy lessons for people in power or people mm. with in, with privileged identities. And that's something I actively am trying to avoid making, no matter what kind of story I tell. Is I am not making work about my identity in order to teach or justify my existence to other people. And I think that's what the danger is in making cathartic or intense or overly uplifting things. It's like regardless of whether or not you're trying to rationalize a terrible world or fig- imagine a world better than it, um, we don't need to, uh, how do I say, uh, we don't need to kind of like ingratiate ourselves to our, oppressor- our oppressors mm. um, in order to make work that envisions a better world or condemns the world we live in. Like that's my main thing. Um, but, yeah, yeah, but not an argue. I didn't say any of that. It's like kind of the nature of oh, why, why should you have to and take it out of put in all this problems. energy and emotional like taxation on yourself for people who are the cause of that in the first place, sort of thing? You know, is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, kind of. So thank you for uh, talking with us today Jenna it's been really that's been like really interesting I've, I've like learned a lot of stuff so thank you for that yeah of course that'll be our time for today um thank you for listening this has been the gay agenda with Phoebe and Jenna Yao and I will see you next time bye
The Gay Agenda is proudly supported by funding from the Rural Foundation. The Rural Foundation seeks to advance the health, well-being and visibility of LGBTQI New Zealanders. For more information about the Rural Foundation, check out their website at www.ruralfoundation.nz. This programme was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Hawke's Bay, your community access media station, Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.